Listener supported. WNYC Studios. You're about to hear a recording of a live radio program. It's called Indivisible. You can listen live and call in four nights a week on public radio stations around the country or at indivisibleradio.com. You can also join the conversation with hashtag indivisibleradio or leave us a voicemail at indivisibleradio.com. Subscribe now so you don't miss a thing. Okay, here's the show. This is Indivisible, public radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. I'm Carrie Miller, and I'm in the studios of Minnesota Public Radio in St. Paul, Minnesota tonight. And as I explore the idea of American identity, we're going to talk about something that's at the heart of it, and that's the idea and ideal of the American dream. So who gets to have their dream fulfilled in this country today, and why? And what does the American dream mean anymore? Now, as our guests join us, I'd like you to think about this in more than just economic terms, although I know that that's going to be important to the discussion, too. But I'd like you to go beyond that as well. Are we a people who each get a chance to pursue happiness? Do we still have an ethic and a commitment to the common good? Do we share a collective American dream? So you can talk to me tonight about the economics of this, but I want you to get a little philosophical as well. Talk to me, think about this, whether we collectively, as Americans, still have a a commitment and an ethic to the common good, and do we share a collective American dream? Here's the phone number, 844-745-8255. You can find me on Twitter, at Carrie, K-E-R-R-I-M-P-R, Use the hashtag Indivisible Radio. The number again, 844-745-TALK. And on Twitter, at Carrie, K-E-R-R-I-M, as in Minnesota, P-R. And then use the hashtag Indivisible Radio. Our guest, Elizabeth Catt, is a public historian and a former instructor at Middle Tennessee State University. She has a forthcoming book called What You Are Getting Wrong About Appalachia. And she's with us tonight from KPFT in Houston, Texas. And Elizabeth, welcome. It's really good to have you on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Rami Nashashibi is with us. He's executive director of the Inner City Muslim Action Network, and he's a visiting professor at the Chicago Theological Seminary. And he's with us from WBEZ in Chicago. And Rami, welcome to you. It's good to have you with us. Thank you, Carrie. And I hope first names are all right with everybody. Is that good? That's good. Okay, good. So, Rami, again, as I said here for our listeners to think about this, I I know we're going to spend some time talking about how important the idea of economic mobility is, because that's central to the American dream. But I wonder if you'd say something about the importance of this sense of a shared purpose, you know, a kind of collective dream to a democracy. I mean, isn't that something that gives us a strong sense of identity? What would you say? Absolutely. I think the, you know, there have throughout uh, the years and decades and centuries since the founding of our country been various debates and uh, inceptions and very different uh, variations of this notion of what that American dream means and for who uh, for whom is actually included in that notion. I think um, while there has been and always I think continues to be an aspirational vision, 
there also has been moments of radical exclusion from what it means to, for instance, live a better, richer, fuller life, which I think for for several decades was in many ways the definition of what that dream meant. And Rami, I wonder if you sense that when you talk about exclusion, that we're in a time where there's a perception that if I'm going to get my piece of the American dream, somebody else is going to have to give up some part of theirs. There's not enough to go around. Do you think there's a sense of that in some communities? I think there is, and there always, quite frankly, has been. Uh, and, And I think here lies, in part, some of the challenges for us as a country when we continue to have the conversation about a notion like the American dream is, one, coming to terms with the ways with, with, within which uh, through political, social, historical, ideological means people have been radically excluded. Mm-hmm. Um, and two, coming to terms with the ways in which communities have been pitted against one another in the realization of the dream. In other words, one community's vision of realizing the American dream has often come at the expense of another community's deprivation from that very same dream. Yeah, Elizabeth, I'd love to hear you on that as as a public historian. What would you say? Right. I hear a lot in my communities about this idea that there are people who have been excluded from the American dream. And I think what's driving the conversation um, among the people that I live with is, is this exclusion, is it sort of a natural um, output of economic inequality or are they being intentionally excluded? What is holding people back? Um, And so when you have people who are going through extreme economic distress, there's people who are lashing out. They're not really connecting to the wider world. They're not seeing their um, problems reflected in other communities and other groups. And so we have these moments where there's an extreme sense of divisiveness among people who might ordinarily have potential to connect. And Elizabeth, do you think that is primarily driven, as you noted, by economic distress? Or, I mean, is there something else about the way we're changing? I mean, how we how we look to one another as Americans that also contributes to that? From my perspective, um, I'm most interested in connecting that to sources of economic distress. Um, the region that I'm from is noted for its extreme um, unequal wealth distribution and problems related to that. So when I see that people who are lashing out, I think that absolutely there's something deeper going on. There's lots of manifestations about racial anxiety and this as well. But when I'm trying to kind of piece these out, um, I really see them connected to a lot of economic issues that are shared across the United States. Rami, I'd love to hear you on that before we grab some calls here. Is, Is this also about... Uh, America doesn't look the way, you know, it looked in the make America great again, you know, kind of days. And we've got a level of some communities have a level of discomfort with that. Well, you know, I, I really do think it's critical, though, for us to recognize that the notion of America looking a particular way is in many ways part of the problem. America has never looked one particular way, and there's always been groups who've contested the way people want America to look. 
Um, I think the dynamism, the richness, the potentially unifying narrative for the American dream is that it is an aspirational dream that has never been fully realized. It's the Langston Hughes notion of America. Let America be America again, the land that has never been yet. And I think if we don't acknowledge how radical racial economic, social, cultural, religious exclusion has been uh, through domination, subjugation, legal means over the, over the decades, then we do ourselves a profound disservice. This is not – oftentimes when we talk this way, unfortunately, it is interpreted as a either progressive, liberal, uh, conservative, radical conversation – And I think that does us all a collective disservice. This is part of our collective narrative that we need to come to terms with as we move towards a vision of reconciliation, if you will. You know, I just want to say uh, that I'm really happy that you mentioned that Langston Hughes poem. I did a whole series for Minnesota Public Radio based on that poem and people's different interpretations. Langston Hughes was torn between... His love for, as you say, the aspiration of the American dream and all the ways that America fell so far short. I mean, I, that, that poem is really a cry of what could be and why isn't. Why aren't we fulfilling that promise? It's perfect for this conversation, really. Absolutely. And I think it's critical to embrace that vision of America, particularly in this moment. Uh, as opposed to the vision, or I would say the false claim that America, that returning to a moment in American history to recapture some uh, achieved, reified understanding of greatness, I think that, again, does a disservice to every community in America because it perpetuates a not only a fantasy but uh, but in many ways a narrative that is about uh, other people's suffering and doesn't take into consideration the real pain of that suffering. Okay, so we've got some great callers on the line here. Let's go to Kendall in Burlington, North Carolina. So Kendall, how are you thinking about this tonight? Hi, thank you for taking my call. Sure. Um, I I'm thinking that, uh, for one, some of it was already mentioned, but that the American dream is no longer, um, I guess, what it was. And I, I, I'm not sure if it ever was because it was particularly um, we, when we have talked about it, when I learned about it in school and, and when it was discussed at, at um, dinner tables, it was um, not created or even not even formulated with uh, particularly me, my community, or any of the institutions that I took a part in uh, in mind. And so when I think about that, I think all of these things, the fact and that people are realizing that this kind of noble ideal um, is not, has not been in for, for a number of, of centuries, has not been able to be translated to um, minority communities or not even just on the, on the basis of race, but particularly with class. So I, I'm seeing that whenever the American dream was even uh, put out there as, as this ideal. Mm-hmm. It was specifically for people in a particular class with a particular background. Um, and so when when that doesn't kind of, or when that does happen, but it excludes or makes others strive even harder for uh, to attain it, um, I have to I have to say and agree with the with uh, it, I know one of your panelists that this idea of the American dream is uh, I, I believe no longer. It, it, Kendall, thanks so much for the call. Elizabeth, do you think 
that that's true in, in this area, again, in which you have a lot of expertise. And you were raised in Appalachia, is that right? Yeah, I was, I'm from East Tennessee. Okay, East Tennessee. Do you think what Kendall is saying is true that there are, I mean, there are regions and there are entire communities that feel like we miss out on the American dream. It was never really about us. And nobody really cares that we don't get our shot at it. Yeah, absolutely. I identify uh, very strongly with that. Um, Appalachia has always been a place where the American dream becomes very complicated. Um, As a historian, I would, you know, kind of go back and definitely agree with your caller that it's probably not something that was ever really meant to exist for people uh, from certain groups and from certain regions. And certainly Appalachians aren't um, the only people who um, are shut out from the American dream. African Americans are another group that always have this burden of being able to, I guess, get a glimpse of the American dream, but not ever be able to achieve it. And Of course, what happens is when that doesn't happen, you have all kinds of disparate conversations happening about why this is not so. Is it something in the structure of our society that's holding people back? Is it something um, deeper within their pathology that's keeping them from not being able to realize their potential? And unfortunately, over time, I think that um, people who are in charge, um, politicians or cultural elites, have more often erred in the side of saying that there's just something pathologically wrong with the people who cannot, uh, for lack of a better word, rise to the top. Uh, On Twitter here, a listener says the traditional American dream house, white picket fence, etc., was made possible by loans denied to African-Americans. The American dream, as it has come to be known and accepted, is inherently systematically racist. Rami, would you do you agree with that? What what would you add to that? Again, I would I would certainly, uh, you know, agree that there is a moment, for instance, in the mid 20th century, early 20th century, that the American dream translates into home ownership. And of course, uh, what that looks like in places where, for instance, I live and work on the south side of Chicago is uh, a radical denial of that once again to a group of, you know, millions of African-Americans who are coming through the great migration into urban centers who wanted, of course, to live out a richer, fuller, deeper life alongside their white working class, Irish American, Polish American, Lithuanian American brothers and sisters. But, you know, again, here is another, you know, moment and instance in our history where the realization of that dream for one group of people is in many ways pursued and achieved through the denial of that dream for others. And so we've had these moments But I would stress that I continue to think that at the heart of this conversation should be a unromantic and sober realization that part of both the messiness and perhaps beauty of our democracy is that it has, since its incorporation, never realized those extraordinary ideals. Yeah, I I noticed that, that, um, Rami, you use that word unromantic uh, pretty deliberately, as in we know that there's a lot of mythology about America and the American dream. And you're saying, open your eyes pretty wide and see this for what it is. Yeah, and that that doing that does not diminish um, our patriotic love and aspirational ideals for America. And again, I think it's been a part of um, our conversations over the decades. I mean, if you read, for instance, the turn of, 
you know, the early 20th century, you had people like Mark Twain and writers who were taking profound issues with our country's direction when it came to imperial domination of the Philippines, of Guam, of Hawaii, and what that meant to subjugate another group of people. Throughout history, we have had great iconic American voices from Frederick Douglass to uh, Ida B. Wells to many other heroes who have constantly challenged us to live up to those ideals and to be true to the aspirational vision of what that American dream could look like for all people. You're listening to Indivisible. And as you know, if you've been listening to the show on Thursday nights, I uh, am behind the mic at Minnesota Public Radio and I talk about the idea of American identity. Tonight, it's about the idea of the American dream and the disillusionment that a lot of Americans feel with their ability to access the American dream. Now, we are going to talk about the economics of this because I think that's intrinsically connected. But I'm also kind of challenging you as you listen to this conversation and think about joining it. If we're if we still have a an ethic and a commitment to the common good, that's part of something that I think we would define as pretty essential to the American dream. And do we have a collective American dream. 844-745-8255. I will tell you very busy phone lines here. You can reach me on Twitter at Carrie, K-E-R-R-I-M-P-R. Use the hashtag Indivisible Radio. If you get a busy signal on the phone lines, call us back. I'd really love to hear from you wherever you are. And to Ethan in Indianapolis. Ethan, how are you thinking about this? Hi. Well, uh, I actually have read both Ayn Rand and ta Coates. And I can say that I think it's kind of two sides of the same coin when you're talking about the American dream, and that Ayn Rand and Alice Shrugg saw the American dream as pure capitalism without, you know, the idealism of the common good, because she saw that as kind of leeches. And ta Coates saw the American dream as something only like an Ayn Rand fantasy for, you know, up, middle, upper-class white people. Yeah, I appreciate the call, Ethan. I want to grab uh, Bradley here in Nashville. Bradley, I have about a minute, but I wanted to get you in. How are you thinking about this? Um, I, I honestly, I, I look at the American dream kind of as this this kind of elaborate fantasy that we've allowed ourselves to believe in for oh. a substantial amount of time. Really? And I think what we're seeing right now are a lot of people coming to this realization that it was a fantasy. And and as we look at more people and we see more people, we have more access to people, whether it's through social media or just physically we were realizing that that was never something that was accessible to the masses. Uh, this idea of the picket fence and perfect family and dog, and none of those things are really accessible to us or to the majority of us, really. And I think a lot of our issues, a lot of what we're dealing with right now as Americans is the fact that we are having to reconcile with this fact that that just wasn't real. All right. Hey, Bradley, I really appreciate the call from Nashville. Okay, so two listeners there who are talking about this idea that our concept of the American dream is a fantasy. We'll talk about that with our guests, Elizabeth Cat and Rami Nashashibi, and with you. This is Indivisible. Indivisible is supported by Blue Apron, delivering gourmet recipes, pre-selected portions, and fresh ingredients to customers' doors. More at blueapron.com slash indivisible. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. 
there's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Indivisible, public radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. I'm Carrie Miller here at Minnesota Public Radio tonight. I talk about American identity on Thursday nights on Indivisible. And tonight we're tackling the concept of the American dream. And I'm asking you to think about it economically, of course, but also think about it in more of a philosophical way as well. And here's Catherine, who called from Bloomington, Illinois. She says she's living the American dream. Her grandfather was a coal miner. She now makes a six-figure income. All of the reasons her family was able to move out of poverty has everything to do with focusing and studying on uh, uh, and hard work and to Iris in Pennsylvania. Hey, Iris. Hi, I'm glad you called in. Uh, Thank you for taking my call. Of course. How are you Um, thinking about this? Yeah. Yes. Well, um, the reason why I'm calling is because I am a U.S. citizen. Uh, I am from Puerto Rico and Puerto Rico compared to the mainland is a complete different world. And um, when I came to this country, we had to learn the customs and the laws and the language. So I've noticed through uh, studying your culture and getting to know what America is, uh, even the greats, they, they struggle, all the wealthy people that had all the banks and everything. And I've come to the realization that for migrants from the island and for immigrants from other countries, the American dream is what keeps us going. It doesn't matter the struggles in America. We still believe in, in its laws and its courts. We believe that, you know, if you work hard and you do the right thing, you're going to get what's coming to you. And once you get it, it won't be taken away. Now, I've noticed, however, that the country itself as a whole has become a little pessimistic. And I've noticed that a lot of people believe the American dream is something that you work and then you get rewarded with it. Mm -hmm. Like it's a guaranteed thing that you're supposed to get because you put in your time and such. (laughs) And for others, it is something you always constantly work to keep what you have. And it is a great country where you can have your family have a safe be able to sleep at night, but it it has become more of an individual dream than a nationalistic one. It seems seems that way to me. Yeah, Iris, this is what I want to ask you. Do you think sometimes when I talk to first or second generation Americans, they say, Mm -hmm. we understand the American dream better, and by the way, we appreciate it more than people that were born here. Do you think that's true? Absolutely, because you know what it's like not to have those freedoms, not to have anything, to be poor, to to deal with less. And then when you come here, everything is excess. And actually, um, when, when, when you come from outside with nothing and here you work hard and you realize that your work is appreciated, you take care of what, of what you have more. You're not thinking about upgrading to to a bigger house, you maintain the one you have. You don't, you're not constantly thinking about uh, getting into debt and, and spending. Hmm. That's why um, a lot of people, they feel threatened because I've noticed that 
um, Americans born in the country, they're always, uh, unfortunately, living more on credit and borrow <laughs> than owning right. completely. And then other, they don't understand how come other people can come from the outside and within less than a few years, they can have a house and maybe two cars and, and be okay and not stressed out. And, okay. And let me are not given to people. Iris, They're let earned. me do this. I, I really, I'm really glad you called. You've said a lot. I want to give our guests a chance to, you know, kind of take in what you've said. Uh, Elizabeth, what do you make of that, especially what Iris was saying about there's this sense of maybe entitlement, right? I worked hard. I'm owed a a piece of the American dream. You think that's true? I definitely think that's true for some people. Um, it's been a very noticeable thread of rhetoric through this campaign that um, people are in this stage where their economic circumstances are narrowing and they want to find some person or some um more tangible reason that that those realities are so and so I think people do get resentful when they don't um, have the sort of access to wealth that they might have imagined they don't have the lifestyle that they might have imagined but I find myself um, more reflective on the guest that talked about uh, American dream as a fantasy mm, yeah as a historian when I think of the American dream I think of sort of the post-war boom in the 1950s and 60s um, which were a time of great um, w- accumulation of wealth for the middle, for the lower and middle class um, white people. But it was also a time of um, housing segregation. It was also a time of um, educational discrimination, the civil rights struggle. And so I think possibly what might be true is that we all have these different versions of the American dreams that we occupy and that those change from moment to moment or generation to generation. That's a good point, because, Rami, I've been asking, is it important that we have some kind of sense of shared American dream? Do you think it is? I I think it's critical to have a shared commitment to working collectively to realize that dream for everyone. Absolutely. Uh, And that's an important distinction for me. And I see that. And I don't necessarily, as a person who... Again, as a, a son of immigrants, a grandson of immigrants, uh, and as a person who works in communities that are still very much struggling with realizing, I think, the very basics of what most people would interpret as that dream, um, I don't still – I'm not pessimistic about it. I see every, in my everyday life profound instances of people coming together across very large differences to work to realize those uh, ideals to address the gap between our articulation of the dreams and our lived realities. And I think that is important. Without that drive to do that, then yes, I do think, you know, things can begin to look very dark and very bleak very quickly. Uh, But again, I think that requires us to be very honest. Um, I was struck by, I think it was uh, one of the callers who came and talked about this notion of the immigrants often coming here uh, working with a sense of determination um, and perhaps doing so in ways that are different than uh, maybe what others would perceive or interpret as entitlement. Right. But uh, but again, though, I think it's important for immigrants, as again, as a son and grandson of immigrants who came to places like the south side of Chicago and became very successful in acquiring their own home, uh, to to recognize that they had to do that at the cost of 
a tremendous amount to other communities. While my grandfather was, as a refugee, coming to the south side of Chicago, working very hard, acquiring a home, he was doing it at the same time that millions of migrants were coming from the Mississippi Delta area and were deprived and violently denied the access to housing, access to loans, access to the same type of wealth that he was able to build. So if you don't recognize that and you begin to fall into this idea that it's either one way or the other, it's either a fantasy or it is in fact the true dream of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, so to speak, then I think you uh, perpetuate a false binary, if you will. If you've just gotten into the conversation, joined us, I want to make sure you know who uh, my guests are tonight. Rami Nashashibi is with us. He's executive director of the Inner City Muslim Action Network. And Elizabeth Catt is with us. She's a public historian. She has a forthcoming book called What You're Getting Wrong About Appalachia. To the phones here to Camilla in Raleigh, North Carolina. So, Camilla, tell me a little bit about yourself. And thanks for calling. Yes. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having this topic. It's one of my favorites. So, I'm 22. Mm -hmm. I'm a dual citizen of this beautiful country and another little one called Honduras, Latin America. Uh I came here at the young age of 13, knowing English. And I was told if I worked hard, I would get the world, and I have. So, I believe that, and I'm 22, and I know I'm young, but let me tell you about it. So I got the loans I needed for college. I got the grades I needed. I'm a graduated nurse. I work in the Triangle area, if you're familiar with that, the Valley area. So I'll keep my employer um, anonymous. But basically, they're paying for my student loans. In three years, I will be debt-free. So if that's not the American dream, I don't know what is. (laughs) So well said. Uh, And so, Elizabeth and Rami, this is a good time, I think, to talk about where the economics of this fits in, which we've kind of been alluding to in the conversation. I I was looking at some research that Raj Chetty uh, has done out of Stanford. And he was telling, he says that in 1970, Nine out of 10 American 30-year-olds earned more than their parents did when you adjust for inflation. In 2014, Elizabeth, only half of American 30-year-olds earned more than their parents. We really can't ignore economic uh, realities like that, can we, when we talk about this perception of whether the American dream is accessible? Absolutely not. Um, Those are some significant economic realities. You know, what happens in my region is that um, young people have some kind of understanding of what the economic shifts are, even if they can't lay their hand to exactly facts and figures about them. And so they're told that if they want the American dream, if they want social mobility, then the best thing for them to do um, is move out of the region. Um, And I tried that myself. And I'll just tell you a little bit about my experience doing that. Um, I moved to from um, Tennessee to Texas. I was a person who had been around coal mining my entire life, used to living um, in the midst of poverty. Um, But I tried to put my education towards social mobility. We came down to Texas, I ended up in a community in Beaumont. um, That is dominated by the oil industry. Uh Um, So there's a lot of similar problems between coal mining and the oil industry. There's industrial pollution. Um, There's a large underclass, exactly like there is in Appalachia. The demographics look a little bit different. Most of the underclass here 
are African-American, but there's limited mobility once you get into the region because um, the economics in the region are so significantly shaped by one dominant industry. And so when you look at people and say, if the American dream isn't working for you, maybe take it on the road, um, (laughs) you have to consider that people might just be swapping one sort of um, bad set of realities for another. That's a really good point. I mean, some of this disillusionment, Rami, is because the world I think there's a perhaps a perception that the world shifted underneath your feet. You were doing all the all the right things. And yet there was stuff out of your control. And now you find yourself perhaps in the situation that uh, Elizabeth has been describing, having a skill, having a trade, having gotten an education and still the economics don't work for you. Absolutely. And or if you take other realities like the ones that exist in inner city urban communities across America and have really the story of the last 30 to 50 years in many of these spaces where industry, not unlike some of the rural areas, completely abandoned these communities and there was absolute uh, almost criminal disinvestment from certain neighborhoods, leaving populations of young people uh, with uh, unemployment rates that sometimes skyrocketed to 30 to 45 percent, failing schools um, with uh, incarceration rates that were sometimes seven to ten times higher than the general population. Um, when you're dealing with those type of economic realities where you're lucky to have a perhaps a liquor store uh, as the only business uh, in any in a kind of mile or two mile square radius of the neighborhood that you spend most of your life in, um, then the type of stories that Camila uh, identified, which you know is a phenomenal story and People like Camila are to be completely uh, acknowledged and, um, you know, commended for that type of spirit. But we can't uh, look at stories like Camila's and not acknowledge that there continues to be millions of young people that unfortunately have still institutionally, structurally, and systemically been locked out from many of those same types of opportunities. Ryan uh, called from Cincinnati, Ohio. He says he thinks that at one point we did have a collective American dream, perhaps in World War II. However, in the years that have followed, that's less and less true. We don't have community goals in the same way that we did before. Now it's more about our own dreams as individuals. And Marcus Uh, in Alabama called to say the American dream is the right to chase after whatever you desire, not necessarily always being able to get what you want. That's interesting. If you've just gotten in on the conversation, I'm Carrie Miller. Indivisible comes to you on Thursday nights from Minnesota Public Radio. And I'm talking, as I do on Thursdays, about American identity and tonight's about that idea of the American dream and the perception that a lot of Americans have that It's become inaccessible. And then I'm asking you to think about whether we still have this commitment to a common good, you know, a shared American dream. Do we share a collective ideal of that? The number 844-745-8255. Lots of calls coming in. Please do call me back. I want to hear from a lot of a lot of perspectives here in a lot of different parts of the country tonight and on Twitter 
at Carrie, K-E-R-R-I-M-P-R, as in Minnesota, and then use that hashtag, Indivisible Radio, into the phones to Sabrina in Virginia Beach. And uh, Sabrina, thanks so much for waiting. Appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. It's been a great show. I'm glad. Tell Um, me what you're thinking about as you listen. I'm thinking that there's sort of really two American dreams. There's the one that's based on the inalienable rights, right? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of people in poverty and a lot of people in the world, those those rights are a dream, right? You're alive, you're free, and you can pursue happiness. And there's this second American dream, which a lot of people who are born in the United States seem to have, where you have life, you have liberty, you're entitled to happiness. And then the dream becomes uh, being rich and famous. And there's and, and this want to constantly climb and constantly accumulate. And that second version of the American dream, to me, does not seem sustainable. I don't think it's been sustainable for a while. And, and it has stepped on people. Thank so, you. I mean, so, Sabrina, are, are you, do you have to run or can you answer a question? No, not at all. I just... That was it. Yeah, well, I was curious. I mean, it sounded like you were kind of saying that our idea of what the American dream is has become distorted by that idea that it, it's got to include fame and wealth. And you think that's right? I feel like the Ameri- I feel like for some people, the American uh, dream is to constantly accumulate and to constantly get more, have more, become wealthier, and not have any concept of what enough is, uh-huh. and not have any real in- internal um, concept of what happiness is. We're very constantly given these images like, eat this hamburger and you'll be happy, <laughs> drive this car, right. and pretty people will want to hop in that car with you. And, and you, we're constantly fed this chase, 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 and we're very rarely taught to sit quietly and look around us and realize what we do have, because an awful lot of people in this country would realize that they are happy if they stopped chasing. Yeah, really well said. Elizabeth, will you weigh in on that in, the, in about the minute that I have here? Yeah, I definitely um, understand the um, feeling that ch- just the chase itself is exhausting, um, whether or not we're moving closer to our goals, whether the goalpost keeps changing. I think a lot of people share that feeling that we're getting tired out just running the race. Elizabeth Catt is with us tonight. She's a public historian and has a book coming out called What You're Getting Wrong About Appalachia. And Rami Nashashibi is with us. He's executive director of the Inner City Muslim Action Network, and he's a visiting professor at Chicago Theological Seminary. And they're joining me tonight on Indivisible to talk about what the idea and the ideal of the American dream is. Do we share a collective idea about that? Has it become distorted? And as we talk about the economics of this, because that's a key part of it, I'm also asking you to think more philosophically about it. How key is the idea of a shared American dream to a thriving democracy? 844-745-8255. And this is Indivisible. Indivisible is supported by Blue Apron, delivering gourmet recipes, pre-selected portions, and fresh ingredients to customers' doors. More at blueapron.com slash indivisible. This is Indivisible, Public Radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. 
I'm Carrie Miller, and uh, I'm coming to you tonight from the studios of Minnesota Public Radio as we talk about the American dream. On Twitter, Sammy says, the American dream for me is to have options. I have a Ph.D., but I drive a truck for a living to do what I want. That's the American dream. And Norn says, doing all the right things. Yes, that's it exactly. And still it doesn't work. You've got it. That's the key. And to Aaron, listening in Arkansas. Hi, Aaron. I'm glad you heard the show and you called in. How are you thinking about this tonight? Well, uh, thank you for letting me on. I've really liked the show ever since it's been aired since our turbulent time since January. I'm glad. But um, actually, a lot of the there's a lot of truth to what everybody's saying. Um, but my personal experience with the American dream has started in my youth. I was taught that you know, work hard for your goal and you'll make it. But at the same time, you have to be realistic in what your goal is in relation to what your abilities are. Um, I mean, we're a lot of us are told, you know, work hard. You, you can be an astronaut if you want. But, you know, that's really not the reality of the situation. Um, I myself, I'm a dentist. I actually graduated undergrad at age 20 and became a dentist at age 24, wow. which is relatively early. Yeah. But I learned that... No, that was what I wanted to do, and I figured out that I had an intuition for the biological sciences, and I had an intuition for being able to talk to people and, and calm them and gain their trust, which is something, as a dentist, you kind of need to have. <laughs> uh-huh. um, but I could never be a rocket scientist. I am as dumb as a rock when it comes to math. So I learned very quickly all the things I thought about wanting to do that were math-related would not work for me. So I adjusted my goals mm-hmm. in accordance to my own ability and then pursued that dream. What, what part of Arkansas are you calling from tonight, Aaron? Um, well, it's a kind of west-central area called Russellville. Okay. Um, so a smaller community then? Smaller community. Yeah, there's okay. only 40,000 people in that community. The town I actually am from and live in is about 3,000. Okay. So very rural. Um, yeah. I'm really glad to have your call because, Rami, this is something that I I wanted to get to. I think there's also, and and we experience this in the Midwest, as you know, and in a lot of other parts of the country. There's perhaps an idea that if the haves who, perhaps this this is believed, you know, who often live in cities, would care more about what's going on outside of those cities and rural parts of the country, we could then, you know, we could then kind of share this idea of the American dream. But the haves don't really care, and they've turned their backs mostly, I'm, you know, on on people in rural communities that have really seen a lot of turmoil when it comes to the economy. I mean, these are the kind of debates that you will hear here in St. Paul at the Minnesota State Capitol. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of truth in that debate and in that pain that many, of course, in rural America feel. But I also think there's a uh, misunderstanding when it comes to thinking about the monolithic representation of our cities. Mm-hmm. Um, I think our, as we, as many of us know, our urban centers across the United States also suffer from the same type of profound disparities. Um, where there are, you know, groups of people who live a completely, I'll take Chicago, you know, in many ways, and it's certainly not alone, but it's oftentimes the city that gets held up for these type of divisions, but it's a tale of two cities. 
right. uh, and realities that are profoundly different, for instance, in one part of the north side of Chicago than it is on the south and west sides. Um, and that ability to both challenge citizens who have been through their own extraordinary efforts and through privilege that needs to be acknowledged as through privilege, that they were privileged to go to great schools, live in great neighborhoods, uh, be raised by parents who instilled them with the safety of the comfort of their home and values to thrive, that those privileges also demand a type of attention to addressing the disparities that exist. And I think that is in part you know, uh, what one of the early callers said in some cases goes directly, I think, in opposition to one interpretation of the dream, which is simply has unfortunately kind of been interpreted as as just more accumulation. Uh, And I think that's what people like King warned us about 50 years ago in notions about materialism, racism, and notions of of militarism, that those things are, as he called, the triple evils in many ways, contribute to that disconnect in our in our understanding of what that dream means for all of us. You know, Elizabeth, when you were talking a moment ago about failing schools, I was thinking about, and again, we have a we have a big achievement gap in Minnesota. I was thinking part of the challenge of that is to get the communities that. Um, Aren't, don't have failing schools, that have resources to invest in those schools, to care enough about the prospects of the kids that are in the schools that are failing, right? Because, again, that's as, as the uh, collective prosperity happens, you, you cannot turn away, basically, from people that don't have the kind of head start, right, that Rami was just talking about. Yeah, what struck me when when Rami was uh, talking a minute ago is this very noticeable conversation that's happening nationally about whether um, people in cities, coastal elites, should care more about people who live in rural areas and vice versa. Mm -hmm. And you can sort of translate to this to a larger conversation about the haves and about the have-nots. And it's really not about the politics of caring. It's about understanding that the problems um, in my community are no different than the problems in your community, although they might look different. Mm -hmm. Um, My schools in my community um, won't be achieving until schools in Chicago are achieving, the people in my communities won't have clean water until people in Flint have clean water. So I think that we often prescribe these politics of caring about, um, you know, different dichotomies in this conversation, rural or urban, elite, non-elite, but really it's just about recognizing that we both um, are affected by a lot of the same structural problems. Uh, a call here from Ava in uh, Washington, D.C. Hi. Thanks for waiting. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. Uh-huh. Um, I really actually want to address the point that was just made because a lot of people have been articulating this concern of, you know, if more privileged people just cared about people who are less privileged, it would make things more accessible to everyone. And I want to push back on that because mm-hmm. I think it's really important to talk about how there are 
structural oppressions that people face. I am a disabled black Muslim woman, the daughter of immigrants, and I experience those oppressions in a really real and visceral way every single day. And by virtue of that, I don't have access to things that other people do. And I don't think it's just a matter of privileged people don't care. It's that they feel threatened when we call for our rights and our humanity to be recognized, because when you're accustomed to privilege, our equality looks like you losing, right. you know, your your kind of state of being where you have things and they're easier for you to access and you've, you've grown used to that. So you now see our equality as being an oppression to you. And I think it's important then to also make the, the lens of this conversation really intersectional in its focus because... As someone who's multiply oppressed through my disability and my race and my gender identity, I find that, you know, people want to separate those things out and like, well, racism is impacting you here, but it's those things are always connected. And I think divorcing them from each other is not going to really make the conversation as realistic as it could be. And I think it's less about making people care and more about dismantling broader structures of oppression that have always historically in this country been tied to the success of cisgendered white male you know, individuals in this country. Yeah, Ava, I, I wonder if you heard the, and this is well worth coming back to, the, the beginning of the conversation where, Rami, we were talking about this perception that maybe, you know, the American dream is kind of a zero-sum game, right? If I'm going to get my piece of it, then somebody else isn't going to get their piece of it. And, and I think that's something that Ava is alluding to. Yeah, absolutely. And And I, you know, I did... I fully agree that it is in great part about being sober about the structural systemic mechanisms that perpetuate uh, very real forms of denial um, and deprivation when it comes to accessing anything that looks like that American dream. But I think it's a both and because I do think and, and, and while fully agreeing with Ava's point, it still means that in some cases to dismantle some of those structures, those structures are not just these mega things that exist out there in the universe. We are all part of those structures and processes. And in some cases, uh, we are going to have to, whether it's through faith values, whether it's through our own convictions, whether it's through our principles, agitate one another to care not simply out of altruistic means, but to understand that we all have a stake right. in the future of our country and we are going to have to give up and be a part of making sure more people have access to living more fulfilled, deeper, fuller, enriched lives. Yeah, you put that so much better than I did when I was saying, you know, if you live in the school district that has the stuff – there's a reason why you should – and not just out of altruism, right? Because the, the future is shared. There's a reason why you have to care that there are other districts and other places that don't have those those resources. Elizabeth, you, you wanted to add something? Yeah. Um, I just 
I hear so much about the way that we talk about my region and what Rami has been saying. You know, in Appalachia, we're looking at a scenario where we might um, see the end of the coal industry mm-hmm. in my lifetime. And it's a time that has caused anxiety and worry about the larger economic structures in the region. But it's also um, a time to be almost excited as well because we have the opportunity to declare our accountability to one another as a region and to other people in the in the wider world who are going through similar struggles um, to shape a beautiful and strong version of a shared future together. And I think we it's good to dismantle and deconstruct the American dream, but that's what I'm hanging on to from some of Rami's comments that we need to re-energize our social responsibilities to one another and become accountable not only to our communities, but also to the wider the wider world. Yeah, Rami, you use the word agitate one another. What what do you have in mind to, to, to rise to that challenge? What do you have in mind? Is that happening? Well, I- and I see it happening in the context of the organizing work that you know that that's happening in urban centers. But I see it in many ways in some of the national work that we're doing. In other words, you know, I, I really appreciate Elizabeth's uh, constant you know reminder that the types of challenges you see in Appalachia that for, I'm not personally familiar with. In other words, I have never been to Appalachia. I've never engaged in the, the intricacies and the minutia of the pain and struggle of coal miners. But when I begin to genuinely understand that those realities, in fact, are intimately connected to the realities of young African-American, Muslim, Latino, black and brown kids on the west and south side of Chicago, that we share a collective future, that mm-hmm. in fact, if those in rural America feel completely disconnected from those in inner city urban communities, that we will continue to see these notions of our dreams being pitted against one another and ultimately will be working at odds with one another. So I think the agitation that I'm talking about is this agitation that I think King and others invited us to, Malcolm and and our great organizers today in the movements that we see across the country who are, whether they're coming from one political perspective or the other, I would like to continue to believe that there are principled human beings in this country, and I know that because I engage with them every day, who are challenging us, agitating us, to live up to the unfulfilled values and ideals that we have articulated as our founding doctrine, if you will, in this country. Laura says on Twitter, the American dream cannot be perpetually over the next rise. We need to raise the wage and give people hope. And to Karen, listening in Kansas City. And Karen, thank you so much for waiting. I know it's been a while, but it's it's good to have you on the show. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I just had two quick points. One, um, to Rami's comment, I've had a really good agitator in my life. (laughs) And I started out as a have-not, became a have, and learned that it was at the expense of others. And what he's saying has been true to my experience. For example, in Kansas City, when the plaza, which is a very nice upscale area, was developed, it was written into the code for the development Mm-hmm. that you could not purchase property there if you were black or Jewish. Oh. And when you came time to sell your property, you could not sell to anyone who was black or Jewish. Hmm. And so there is great evidence of groups that were intentionally excluded from what we would probably consider the American dream. And that was a very horrifying thing to learn. You know, I've 
been able to, to live the American dream, but others haven't. So it kind of, it, it erodes my own enjoyment of mine. Right. So to that extent, there is still a collective um, will, if you will, for everyone to experience the American dream. But I do think there's been some loss in our culture of, of how we actually go about that. We're all so busy all the time. And it's really kind of sad. Karen, I'm really pleased to have your call. I'm glad we could get you in and you waited. Thank you so much. Uh, I, I want to mention one other thing here for Indivisible, um, and, and this is exciting. Indivisible's collaborating with the team at StoryCorps on a project to get strangers talking. You can be a part of it. It's kind of what we're doing on Thursday nights. It's kind of what we're doing throughout with Indivisible. They want people with different political views to sit for extended, in-depth conversations, and they'll be facilitated by the conversation experts at StoryCorps. Now, here's how you can take part in this. You can send an email to listen at storycorps.net with the subject line, Indivisible Interview, and describe who you think is your political opposite. And then StoryCorps will try to match you up with someone and get you talking. Okay, so this is Indivisible and StoryCorps together. You can send an email to listen at storycorps.net with the subject line, Indivisible Interview. Rami, Elizabeth, thank you so much. Really great to have you on the show and have your thoughts and your insights on this. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. It's been <laughs> Rami Nashashibi with us from Chicago, where he's executive director of the Inner City Muslim Action Network. And Elizabeth Catt is a public historian. She has a forthcoming book called What You Are Getting Wrong About Appalachia. And I've got one more note for you here. I know a lot of you could not get in on the phone lines. I'd still love to hear what you have to say about whether we have an ethic and a commitment to the common good. Do we share a collective American dream? So we can keep the conversation going on Twitter. Here's how to reach me. It's at Carrie, K-E-R-R-I-M-P-R. Use the hashtag Indivisible Radio. I read as many tweets as I possibly can. I may answer you, but I'd love to know what you think via Twitter. This is Indivisible. Support for Indivisible is provided in part by Emerson Collective, the Ford Foundation, and the Jacob and Valeria Langloth Foundation. If you like the Indivisible podcast, rate and review it and tell your friends. And thanks for listening.